Hello and welcome to Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Emily Dupree. With us today is Sally Haslinger, Ford Professor of Philosophy and Women's and Gender Studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And she's here to discuss ideology. Sally Haslinger, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Okay, so the term ideology is one that I think comes up now and again in like sort of, you know, everyday conversations. But it also is a little bit of a kind of obscure academic word. So what would be an example of like an ideology so we can like kind of feel our way into it? Well, I think that a common understanding of ideology is it's a set of beliefs or um, a broad kind of social agreement about uh, background ideas that justify social practices. So I think that nowadays people are likely to think that racism is an ideology and by that they mean that people who are racist have a set of beliefs that think that people of color are inferior or more prone to violence or lazy or whatever it might be and that these beliefs have the role of an ideology because they're broadly accepted or accepted by at least some significant population, and that then they justify certain kinds of behaviors toward people of that group. So that would be one way of thinking about an ideology. So you might, for example, suggest that when there is discrimination in employment or discrimination in schooling or education or policing, that this is due to ideology. So it might be a gender ideology that women belong in the home or that women aren't as analytically acute. Those are ideological beliefs that people have that prevent women from being successful in math, science, engineering. Or it could be a racist ideology that says you know, people of color are not as good at certain kinds of skills etc. And so it prevents them from being uh, hired. Or it could be, again, in policing that black people are more violent or more prone to violence. And so they need to be treated more roughly or more aggressively. And one salient feature, I think, of the two examples you just mentioned is that these beliefs, I think most people would find them pretty offensive. Like these are bad beliefs to have. Is an ideology always bad? So there are different traditions in the history of work on ideology. So on one conception of ideology, ideology is bad. It's a pejorative use of the term. And so an ideology is a system of belief, say, that sustains injustice or that seems to justify what most people would consider unjust actions or unjust policies. Uh, there's another use of the term in which ide- everything is ideology, right? Whatever we believe it's ideological because ideology is what makes possible social relations. It's what we rely on when we are interacting with each other, some kind of background social assumptions or understandings. So I've chosen to use the term ideology in the pejorative sense, and I'm not suggesting that one is the right one and one is the wrong one, but I've chosen to use ideology in the pejorative sense because I'm interested in something called ideological oppression. So I like to draw a distinction between repression, where there are systems that are coercive and force people to behave in certain ways against their will, 
So you might think of police brutality as repressive. Obviously, slavery was a repressive. There are a variety of other institutions that are repressive. But ideological oppression is different because ideological oppression is a form of oppression that the oppressed participate in willingly. So I think a paradigm example of ideological oppression is gender oppression. So most women value their social role and they take the gender division of labor to be perfectly acceptable, even though the gender division of labor, I think, is unjust and unfair and places exceptional burdens on women. And so I think that one way of thinking about injustice is in terms of repression, but another way of thinking about injustice is that you get people to participate in unjust practices and unjust structures without coercing them by getting them to have a self-conception or an identity that makes it all seem okay. So racism is an interesting example because I think that racism is a kind of hybrid case. I think that people in the dominant group are apt to just go along with their racist practices, not thinking that they're repressing anyone or they're doing anything wrong, that everything is just fine, where the people who are treated unjustly are well aware that there's a problem. And so I think that one of the ways in which ideology is significant is the way it accommodates people to their place in the social structure. So here's a great quote that I like by Stuart Hall, who is a cultural theorist, and he wrote in 1996. He said that ideology has especially to do with the concepts and the languages of practical thought which stabilize a particular form of power and domination, or which reconcile and accommodate the mass of people to their subordinate place in the social formation. So I like to say that it's not just that it reconciles and accommodates people to their subordinate place, but it can also reconcile and accommodate people in the dominant position as well. So I think that racism is an ideology that most people who suffer from racism are well aware that it's a problem, but people who enact racism, just it comes naturally to them. They think it's the ordinary way to engage with people in the world. What is the role of belief in this picture of ideology? Because we've contrasted it with the ordinary picture of ideology where belief is central, but we've shifted away from talking about beliefs towards power and domination. Good, thanks. So I think that a lot of injustice occurs not just through laws and policies, but through our in our daily interactions. And it's not always the case that people who engage in racist practices themselves have bad or problematic or racist beliefs. They may be just doing their best. This may be just the way they get along in the world, right? And if you present to them the idea that they have a racist belief, they would be shocked. They don't think that they're racist at all. And a lot of the work recently on racism has emphasized the role of implicit attitudes. So we have these implicit racist beliefs or racist beliefs that we're not aware of. And I think there's, I'm not denying that there are racist beliefs that are implicit or racist attitudes that are implicit, but I think that that misrepresents really what's going on when certain groups are subordinated and other groups are dominated. So one of the things that we've learned post 
the civil rights movement and the women's movement is that you can't do away with injustice simply by changing the laws. You need to do something more than that. So the next move was, okay, you can't just change the laws. Maybe you just need to change people's beliefs. Okay, so we've come a long way in changing people's beliefs. But I don't think that that's enough either. I think that that our attitudes and our being in the world is shaped by practices that we engage in fluently. And we do so in order to coordinate. So let me give you an example of traffic. So when you're driving down the road, you know the laws and you try to abide by the laws. But just abiding by traffic laws is not sufficient to make you a good driver or to be able to drive, especially in a complicated situation. You go through a whole process of learning how to drive where you learn reactions and responsiveness to stop signs and red lights and pedestrians and different markings on the road. But even that isn't going to be sufficient to enable you to drive in a difficult um, situation because what you need is a sensitivity to the signals that you get from other drivers and very quick reactions to those signals on the road. So, for example, in Boston, if you stop at a yellow light, you're going to be rear-ended, right? Because people don't stop, you know, for yellow lights. Or if you're in California and you don't stop at a crosswalk, oh my God, you're going to kill somebody because the pedestrians just assume that you're going to stop. That's not so much the case in Boston. So you have to learn these kind of the culture, the driving culture in a particular environment. And those kinds of fluent responsiveness to our our social environment is something that happens all the time, not just in traffic, but it happens as we walk down the street. You know, if you've ever, you know, gone to England and you're walking down the street and you notice that people move to the left and you move to the right, then you run into people, right? So that there are these kind of fluencies, these cultural fluencies that we all have. And so I think that that's not always a matter of belief. It's a matter of a kind of responsiveness to cues in your environment that never make it to the point of a belief. And that these kind of cues in your environment are really often responsible for what we think of as racist behavior. But it might well be that you don't recognize the consequences of your actions because you've just engaged in a practice that everybody around you is engaging in. So part of what we need to do is look more closely at the practices that we're engaged in and not simply try to change people's beliefs because it would be like when someone is driving and you get them to think differently about where they should be on the road, but no one else thinks differently about how they should be on the road, right? Then they're going to get in an accident because they need to adjust their behavior to how things work in that particular milieu. So if I say, oh yeah, I'm the kind of person who stops at yellow lights and I stop at a yellow light and then I get rear-ended, I'm going to think, oh, maybe I don't stop at yellow lights anymore, something like that, because the, the milieu is such that successful coordination requires me to do things differently. So we're using the phrase successful coordination a lot, and it seems that it's successful from the point of view, well, in the example of racism, from the point of view of white supremacy, that this coordination would be particularly successful. But of course, it's not successful on any ethical perspective. totally. And certainly not successful from the perspective of people being dominated by white supremacy. Totally. 
So how do you think of the idea of successful coordination? Is there some moral, ethical dimension that's missing to the picture? Yes, definitely. So I think that there are systems of coordination that are unjust, even though they enable us to coordinate, and may be very profitable. For example, slavery was very profitable to certain groups, and it allowed coordination in a sense, but it was also extremely repressive. I think in in a more contemporary context, the kind of repression that was involved in slavery is oftentimes not allowed, but it still creeps in. There's a certain amount of repression that happens through, um, through policing and other kinds of repressive practices. So coordination in and of itself doesn't mean that something is good or moral or reasonable. What we need is a moral evaluation of the system. And my deep moral commitment is that social structures that are coercive are ones that ought to be reevaluated and that there's a reason to think that there's going to be a more just and a better structure that we should embrace. So going back to this commitment to non-coercion, the way I understand society is that society is constructed to enable us to coordinate with each other so that we can all be better off. So human societies and other non-human animals have societies that depend crucially on coordination. So wolf packs, pretty much any animal group that lives in a pack or lives requires coordination in order to survive. And human beings are very, very dependent on coordination. And it seems to me that one thing that's wonderful about humans is we have a possibility of coordinating without coercion. Now, what happens is that there are going to be ways of coordinating that are implicitly coercive, right? so that they're against the best interests of certain groups of people, where we try and mold people to accept their subordinate status and such like that. But it's my view that when that happens, humans have an ability almost always to detect that that's going on. So even non-human animals recognize this. If you have a pack of animals and one of the animals is ill or sickly or one animal is doing aggression toward another animal, things like that, the pack is aware of this. The pack is aware when there's something going wrong in the system of coordination. And I think humans also have this ability to be highly sensitive to this and also to have self-knowledge about when they're being treated unjustly. Now, that doesn't mean that this happens in all circumstances. It happens when the epistemic circumstances are right. So what we have to do is think about, well, what makes for epistemic circumstances when people are able to determine whether something harmful or wrong or or destructive to the coordination is going on? So what I mean by sort of epistemic practices is practices that concern knowledge and the development of knowledge and the destruction of knowledge sometimes. And so I'm interested in what some people call a naturalized epistemology. So a naturalized epistemology is a theory of knowledge that looks at actual cases about when and where and how people gain knowledge. And I think that we can develop a naturalized moral epistemology which enables us to 
figure out when people are capable of gaining moral knowledge, not by introspecting, but by looking at actual cases. So some things we know is that people don't make good moral judgments when they're starving. People don't make good moral judgments when they're at war and their lives are at stake. People don't make good moral judgments when they're under the influence of a charismatic leader, right? These are things that you can tell just by empirical investigation. So what we need to do to develop a naturalized moral epistemology is to try and think more about what are the conditions under which people are apt to make good moral judgments. Another thing we know, people who are in power don't make good moral judgments sometimes because they're not exposed to criticism. They don't get enough good criticism because people are afraid to criticize them. So there's a lot of research on this of when are the circumstances under which people make good moral judgments. There's also good research on when people are put in a position or given the training to become epistemic agents, capable epistemic agents, capable of self-reflection, capable of reflection on their beliefs, of consideration of evidence and updating their beliefs on the basis of evidence. And moral beliefs require evidence as well. So if you don't understand that certain sorts of things are painful to others or diminish others or cause harm to others, those are empirical claims that you can know and you can come to know and evaluate that are relevant to the moral judgments you make. So this on this picture, we need a kind of naturalized moral epistemology that will enable us to locate people who are aware that the system that they're in is harming them, that is diminishing them, that is preventing them from realizing their full potential. And then we speak to them and we say, okay, so tell us about the effects of this system on you. This is what I think Black Lives Matter does. It says, wait a minute, look, look what's happening. Um, we have first-person knowledge about the harms of certain kinds of policing practices or certain kinds of practices of incarceration, et cetera, et cetera. And we want to testify to this. We want to bear witness to this. And then people who are in power, we have to be careful because they may not want to listen to that information or take that information seriously. But we can engage in a kind of moral and nor um, epistemic evaluation of these beliefs about the moral realm, about the justice of the structures that we're in. And so those are the basis on which I think we should judge whether a system is successful or not, because as I see it, a society is not successful if it's coercing people, either implicitly or explicitly, coercing people to participate in the system of coordination, because coordination, we're, we're kind of all in it for the good of all of us. And if it's not really producing that good, then it's not a truly successful system of coordination. Tell me if this is sort of along the lines of what you're thinking. So we're interested in this question. Um, look, we know that ideologies can be deceptive. We know that you know you can be a member of the group that's subordinated by an ideology. You can be oppressed by an ideology, but still buy into it. And then we want to know, well, how do you, given that fact, how do you become aware that some ideology is oppressing you? And it seems like maybe your answer to that question is, well, we use the same techniques we would use to figure anything else out. Maybe we do a little uh, scientific investigation. Maybe we talk to people who are in the trenches and are in a position to know more about what's happening than we are. Um, there's nothing special or mysterious about how we come to learn about 
unjust systems of oppression. We just find out about them the way we find out about anything else. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's basically right, that just as we learn that we can't trust our eyes to tell us the color of things when it gets dark, and so we try to turn the light on or shine a light on something in order to tell what color it is. Likewise, we know that we're not good judges of the justice or morality of a system if we're always seeing it from one perspective, always seeing it from the position of the powerful. And so what we need to do is listen to those who have a different perspective on that system. But as you say, under conditions of ideology, people have been trained and brought up to think that this is the way things ought to be. This is the right thing. And what I'm suggesting is that maybe they're not the best judges of the system and that there will usually be people in the system who are in a better position to evaluate the harms, to evaluate where it's going wrong and where there's an injustice. Now, I think that we should, in this process, be prepared to distinguish a mere complaint from a claim or a moral claim. So there's always going to be complaints about a system. Everything, there's always complaints. Some complaints are just annoyances. But what we have to do is try to figure out, through these processes I was suggesting, when a complaint builds itself up into a moral claim that has to be considered. And I think part of the problem with ideology is that it provides us a kind of limited framework for articulating our claims. So this is where I think consciousness raising plays a role. So if you go back and think about consciousness raising in the 60s and 70s, what happened is that people had complaints and they came together and usually the complaint was, oh, I really don't like it when this happens or I don't like it when that happens. And someone was saying, you know, I don't like that either. That's really bothersome to me. And they began to compare notes about what was problematic about the situation. And they got some kind of intersubjective agreement that this wasn't just you and your complaint or your family situation or your neighborhood situation. This was a broader phenomenon. And there were more people than just you who were experiencing things this way. So that's the first moment of moving from a mere complaint to a claim, it's also a process of gaining objectivity because objectivity requires a kind of intersubjective agreement. So you get that, but then it's sometimes very difficult to articulate what is the content of the claim because the ideology sort of gives you only a certain number of boxes that you can tick off. Okay, so I'm being treated unjustly because you know, I'm not being given a job I'm qualified for. Well, it's not always that, right? It could be something else. This was something that happened in the context of sexual harassment, right? That was a moment of consciousness raising when women realized that it wasn't just that boys will be boys and you had to tolerate in the workplace groping and et cetera, et cetera, lewd jokes and overtures but that there was something about this that made it difficult to be successful in a company, made it difficult to be successful in education, etc., because you were afraid of being around the boss. You were afraid to do your job the way you needed to do your job because you were going to be exposed to this. So there was a moment when a new term was introduced, the term sexual harassment, to try and crystallize this experience and situate it within a normative frame situate it into a normative frame of civil rights. 
So sexual harassment is a civil rights violation because it's a systematic discrimination against women. And so that would be a kind of movement from a set of complaints, oh, we're all complaining, complaining, to intersubjective agreement, to finding a kind of moral frame and a language within that moral frame that could situate it as a, an issue of justice. Yeah, and I think a lot of people might not necessarily know that the term sexual harassment was only recently coined. And before it was coined, it might have been really difficult. for your experience, You're having this terrible experience at work, but if you don't have a word for it that's kind of ready to hand, it's really hard to get people up in arms about it or e- express uh, why this experience you're having is bad. Yes, exactly. So it was in the 70s. I mean, Catherine McKinnon was one of the few. She wrote a book called The Sexual Harassment of Working Women, and that was a place where the legal definition of sexual harassment was first proposed. But there was in the trenches. So I'm interested in social activism that begins with consciousness raising, that begins oftentimes in counterpublics. So counterpublics are spaces that are outside of the dominant frame where people who are often marginalized or subordinated can gather together and talk and be together. So, you know, playgrounds where women brought their children was a kind of counterpublic in periods of time because women could sit around and talk about their frustrations or spaces at work where women can go and spend time together where they're not monitored by the bosses or monitored by men. But also, you know, this happens in gay and lesbian bars. That was a space, it was a counterpublic where different experiences could be articulated, but also different norms could be tried out. So norms for interacting around sexual issues, that could happen in a gay and lesbian bar. Try it out in this counterpublic and sort of see if it works differently. And then gain consciousness, right, in a sense of a new way to think about things, a new way to interact. And then these practices empower people, and then eventually they could bring them to the general public and say, we want a law that gives us marriage equality. We want a law that condemns sexual harassment. But it starts with activists. It starts in a movement. It starts in finding spaces where people who who feel the rub, who feel the pinch of the system are saying, no, this hurts us. This is wrong. We're not going to put up with it anymore. And then they kind of build from there. It sounds like on your picture, then, one of the many injustices of an ideology, whether it's sexual orientation, race, gender, etc., is that people who are living prior to the emergence of this consciousness or the emergence of these new concepts are sort of living a life of an impoverished imagination of what's possible for them or a shortage of concepts that might help them understand either their self or themselves in their family or or just their social community. Yeah, I do think imagination is a crucial part of what ideology critique does. So ideology critique encourages people to think beyond the ordinary framework for how they interact with each other. It shows that there are tensions or contradictions or coercions that are implicit in the current system. And it says, think about how it could be different. Think about alternative ways. I also want to emphasize, though, that in ideological systems, there are things of value that are produced. So I do think that in a division of labor in the family between um, men and women, there are things of value that women feel, experience, do, etc. 
and that women have identified with these. And I don't want to belittle or demean any of those activities. I think that they're not for everybody, though, and not everybody, you know, feels comfortable playing that role. That's not to say that no one should ever play that role or that those things are bad, but that we need to provide more alternatives, use our imagination to provide more alternatives of what families can be and how families can interact and what the division of labor within families might be. So even though in the current system, well, I should not say current because it's not so current anymore, but the the traditional system of the division of labor in the home, it really was pretty well determined that what women had to do and what men had to do. But why couldn't it have been that men did the things that women did and the value that women produced were things that men could produce as well and vice versa? Or why couldn't it have been that there were no men in the family, um, no male parents in the family or things like that? I also am an adoptive parent, so I think that the bionormativity of family life is extremely problematic. I think that my family is a real family. I think it's um, my children are my real children, even though I didn't give birth to them. And so that there are modes of interaction within families that are valuable that we sometimes imagine are only going to occur if you have a biological relationship to your child. But that's just false, right? It's not true that those good things emerge only if you have a biological relationship to your child. But that's something that's a failure of imagination. People can't imagine having that relationship to a child that is, quote, not their own, unquote. Um, And they don't realize that the children that come into their family who are not biological are still their own. You know, those sorts of things. So it's not so much condemning the values that emerge in some of these structures, though some of them I think have to go, but it's to say don't limit yourself in the way you're thinking about those values and pay more attention to the harms and the injustices that they bring along with them. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like... um Maybe if you think that challenging your assumptions about what is or isn't possible is the province of philosophy, and I guess we could have a whole discussion about that, maybe kind of where this discussion is tending is, you know, consciousness raising or activism always involves a little bit of philosophy, or maybe at least it often does. Oh, I I agree. I think that philosophy can offer a lot to activism. I think it can offer an expansion of the imagination I think it can raise normative questions and about how we should and might live together more justly. But I also think that activists have a lot to teach philosophers because activists have a much better sense of the situatedness of knowledge about how actually to intervene in unjust systems. So I was mentioning before that changing belief isn't always the best way to change a practice. And I think activists are very well aware of that. Philosophers have a tendency to think that we're guided by reasons and guided by, you know, true beliefs, you know, in the best circumstances. And I think that's just not right. I think that we're guided by a need for coordination, a need for connection, a need for affect, you know, positive affect and those sorts of things. And even if we have true beliefs, those true beliefs are not going to guide us in many kinds of circumstances because other things are pressuring us to engage with others on their terms. So you mentioned uh, these spaces that you called counterpublics, which are 
venues in which people can like air their individual grievances with each other. But then because they're doing it in a group, they learn, ah, wait, maybe this isn't just about me and how I feel about my personal experience. Maybe there's actually a systemic problem here that we can get together and organize against or something. I wonder whether you would think of a lot of these areas of the internet, such as like Reddit, 4chan, 8chan, where the like alt-right political movement is, uh, you know, gathering steam as counterpublics of the same kind, or should they be thought of differently? So I think that they are counterpublics, and I think that there can be important knowledge produced in those settings. But I want it to be the case that in these settings where where we gain moral knowledge, we have to also hold them accountable to ordinary standards of empirical adequacy and other kind of scientific standards of truth and objectivity. So my worry is that in some sort of white supremacist context where there's a counterpublic that is promoting white supremacy, there's a lot of empirically false claims that are easily demonstrated to be false that provide the background assumptions for those discussions. And so it may well be, too, that in some of the you know, radical lefty ones, there are false empirical claims that we have to examine through ordinary standards of scientific and philosophical methodology. But I think that there also there's potential for there being knowledge that come out of it. So I think that there is knowledge that we can gain from right-wing activism about the harms and the wrongs of the current economy. I think the current economy is terrible. I think the great disparities in wealth that it produces are extremely problematic. I think that we can gain insight into the wrongs of those wealth disparities by looking at some of the right-wing discussions of this. I also think that there are ways in which feminists and anti-racist activists have used strategies for promoting social justice that are not always inclusive and aren't always respectful and that we can learn as activists about how to do it better by reading some of the blogs and some of the observations that come out of some of these communities. So what I want is to have sources of knowledge that we hold to high standards. These are standards of knowledge. It's not just random radical opinion that we're trying to gather together. It's getting a variety of different populations sharing what their concerns are and what their complaints are and what their suffering is so that we can then begin to gain a broader understanding, a broader knowledge of the wrongs of the system that we're in and work together to make a more just system that will really be non-coercive and will provide for the good of all of us. One thing that the Black Lives Matter movement is forcing us all to do is imagine a future without incarceration. So again, pushing the bounds of the dominant ideology of you know, what is a given in our society and asking us to really get together and think, well, what should we do and how can we avoid the current injustices that we're enacting on the large body of people? And so in that spirit, what are the other sorts of ways forward that we can move in to retain the valuable things that exist under our current 
ideological scheme, but also avoid the harms that many of us either experience or hear others report experiencing. So I think that there are a multiplicity of different places that we can begin to intervene. I see societies as homeostatic systems. Now what this means is that there's a kind of equilibrium that is reached. Think about the body as a homeostatic system that keeps the body temperature at 98.6 or around there. If you get too hot, you sweat, the air blows, you cool down. If you get too cold, you get goosebumps, you warm up. So it's really organized around a set point. And the body set point is given, but society set points can move. It's a dynamic system. And one of the things I worry about when I'm very depressed about society is that it's going to be impossible to really dislodge that homeostatic system. So when you get women in the workplace, then you know you think that's going to be a solution to our problems, but no, then you have super moms and second shifts and third shifts, etc., like that. So the system sort of maintains itself. And if you think about society as this very complex thing that has education, it has food distribution, has transportation, it has you know other aspects of the economy and legislation and the judicial system and incarceration and healthcare. You know, you have many, 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 many systems, and they're they're working in sync to sustain the society. So, like this homeostatic system, think of an ecology. It's like a social ecology. So, I think that the issues around incarceration are extremely important, but so are the issues in education, because I think that we have a, a system of education that fails to educate black students and makes them more available for menial jobs and also you know, street life, because they can't get more high-paying jobs. And that's a failure of the educational system. Right? The educate, as, as Bob Moses put it, we still have sharecropper education, where you only get sharecropper education, I think, was a fifth grade level. And I think that, that, so there's a system. But then there's also food systems and food deserts, right? You can't, if you can't feed your children, then they're not going to be able to learn in school. And then there's the healthcare system, right? And so the, all of these systems work together. So my view is that we all have to work on something, but we don't all have to work on the same thing. That there are many, many, many entry points to destabilize this homeostasis. And that if you just work entirely on one thing, then probably there's going to be a compensatory action happening on the other. Like women getting into the workforce, we compensated for that, and women are still burdened by additional labor, right? So what you have to do is work on multiple fronts at multiple times. You need to work in the arts to have more. That's another place where imagination flourishes is in the arts. You need to work on education and and law and legislation and health care and all of these sorts of things. And so we need a broad coalition to really try to change the social ecology that we're in, the systems of coordination we're in. Now, this can seem really discouraging, and in my nightmarish moments, I'm totally discouraged. I think, oh my God, this is never going to work. But then when you start to see that there are people situated who are activists situated in all of these places, and that we are making progress, and that each individual only has to really work on one set of issues, 
and they can make a difference if we're coordinated, then I feel more optimistic about it. Sally Heslinger, thank you so much for joining us today. I had a great time. It was really fun to talk to you, and uh, I appreciate being invited. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.